themselves, doing something that is of no importance or something of just minor importance. They are both engaged in God's work. And they're both serving a cause that is far greater than themselves. They're not just engaged in something of minor importance. This is a cause which is far greater than themselves, far greater than anything else. They serve the God and Savior who is their hope. That rock-solid certainty in a world of great opposition. Paul was trying to lift Timothy's spirits and lift his eyes to focus on Jesus and to focus on what is really important in life. Despite all the many challenges that Timothy must have been facing and must have been really aware that he was facing. Now none of us here are apostles like Paul and and not many of us here are church leaders like Timothy. But if we've trusted in Jesus this morning then like Paul and Timothy we have all been called to serve a cause that is far greater than ourselves. We're not just random people making our way through a random life. We have been called, if we've trusted in Jesus, we've been called to a significant role. We've been called to serve a cause that is significantly far, far greater than ourselves. It doesn't matter what, we've, what position we find ourselves in, whether we're a church leader, whether we're at home raising kids, whether we are cleaning in the week, whether we're an engineer, a teacher, whatever we're doing, whatever role God has called us to in life, if we've trusted in Jesus, then we've got this one thing in common. We've been called to serve a cause far greater than than ourselves and that cause is Jesus and spreading the good news about Jesus what we call the gospel the good news we've all been called to serve Jesus and to do what we can do to do our best to spread this good news about Jesus the gospel so write that on your outline if if I trusted in Jesus then I've been called to serve him and to spread the gospel I'm, I'm called to something greater than myself and something greater than this life wherever we find ourselves And whatever we find ourselves doing, it's ultimately all a means of serving Jesus and spreading the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And like Timothy, you might find yourself perhaps not leading a church, but you might find yourselves in a tough situation at work or in your your family. You might feel overwhelmed. You might feel daunted by the challenges that you face. You might be very much aware that you're the only Christian in that context and Perhaps sometimes the people around you are hostile or at least not particularly interested in what you have to say as a Christian. You might not enjoy what you're doing. You might feel ill-equipped. You might feel daunted. But as we read these verses, we're reminded that we've been appointed by God, each one of us, not necessarily to be apostles, but we've all been appointed by God to serve him and to serve this ultimate cause of serving the Lord Jesus and spreading the good news about Jesus. And although people like Paul and Timothy may have a special responsibility and a special role in serving God, we all actually have a great part to play in that. This is people's eternal destinies. It's the glory of God that is at stake. And we, every single one of us have a really key role to play in this. Now, Timothy had been given this daunting task of in some way overseeing the church or the churches in Ephesus and, and making sure that they stayed on track and function properly. And we're going to see that in, in the coming weeks that there's lots of stuff in this uh, letter about how uh, Timothy needed to keep his own life focused on serving Jesus, but also how his job was to make sure that the church stayed focused on Jesus, that the church functioned properly, and we can learn from that as we read through it uh, over the coming weeks. 
Paul says this in verses 3 to 4. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. And it seems that there were two ways in which the church in Ephesus was getting sidetracked. There were some who were teaching false doctrines, probably about who Jesus was and how people get to heaven. And some of them were getting involved with what Paul calls myths and endless genealogies. Now, we don't know exactly what this refers to, but it seems that these myths were probably stories from Greek mythology, from, from Greek culture. Probably about half the church had a Greek background, an ethnic Greek background, and in some way or other they were sort of bringing that background with them into church life. Paul doesn't give us the details. Uh, But somehow this was kind of infiltrating and and affecting church life. And it seems that these endless genealogies probably refer to those who were of Jewish ethnicity in the church, who were unhelpfully obsessed with trying to sort of of prove who their famous Jewish ancestors were, who they were descended from in the Bible. And the Christians who had this Greek background were getting caught up in myths and stories, and the Christians who had this Jewish background were focusing on their Jewish genealogy. So at one end of the spectrum... There's some blatant false and wrong teaching, probably around the person of Jesus and and, and how we get to heaven. And at the other end of the spectrum, there's some stuff that wasn't necessarily wrong. It was just unhelpful and unnecessary, like these Jewish genealogies. And Paul says that these unhelpful and unnecessary things promote controversies rather than advancing God's work. Now, we don't know for certain what these issues were, but what we do have is this general principle that Every church needs to be defended from teaching from teaching things that are wrong, from wrong teaching. And whilst it might be especially the role of church leaders like Timothy and, and the elders of a church to take a stand and guard and protect the church, that is particularly one of the roles of church elders, actually every single one of us should be engaged in actively assessing and testing whether what people are saying when they're preaching and teaching, especially in this church... Is it true and is it biblical? It's not just the, the, the role of the elders. The elders should do that. That's part of their role. But actually every single one of us should know our Bibles well and should be thinking and assessing and, 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 and testing. Is what I'm hearing in this church especially, but also uh, from books and, and stuff that we watch on TV and so on, is this biblical? Test what is preached in this church against the Bible. Is what is said, is it biblical? Not does it agree with with what you think, because what you think may not be biblical. Does it agree with what the Bible says? And please don't just be passive and, and sit back and accept everything that is said from up here. Test it against the Bible. Assess what is said. And if you don't agree with it, if, if you find something different in the Bible to what is said up here, then, then come and talk to us about it. Do it nicely, but, but, but come and talk to us about it, because we want to make sure that we're teaching what is accurately uh, what the Bible teaches. So each one of us, whether we're leaders or not, whether we're a Timothy or a Paul, or whether we're just like most of us here this morning, each one of us need to study the Bible, write this down, we need to study it, and we need to evaluate what is being taught so that we can protect the gospel to make sure that what we're actually preaching here and from this church is actually the gospel, but also protect ourselves from being misled and diverted away from what is true, and protect our church. It's so important. Please don't just leave it to a select few. Every single one of us has the ability to read the Bible, to gain a knowledge of the Bible. 
Each one of us should be people who should know our Bibles and should be actively, and not just passively sat back, but actively testing and assessing what is being said and what is being done. And secondly, we need to prevent ourselves and our church from being sidetracked by unhelpful things. So there's stuff that's just clearly biblically wrong. But there's other stuff which may not be quite as clear. These kind of of Jewish genealogy type situations. They weren't wrong as such, from what I can work out. They were just a bit pointless and a bit irrelevant. And they caused controversial speculations and arguments. And I guess for us today, whilst this Jewish genealogy thing is probably not something that that concerns us or is not likely to be an issue in this church what we've got to ask ourselves is in in what ways can we can we find ourselves focusing on things that might distract us from what is really important in what ways can we find ourselves distracted from really focusing on Jesus and the gospel what is it that's really important well it's Jesus and it's the gospel it's advancing God's work as Paul says the good news that Jesus died for us and as Lucy was sharing earlier that we can be forgiven we can have a relationship with God by trusting in Jesus that's what's important so here's a question for each one of us to think about this morning what things lead me away what things lead you away from advancing God's work in other words Jesus and the gospel if I'm not careful what are those things that we might be tempted to kind of obsess about or or just get distracted by Things that are not necessarily wrong, they might even be a good thing in the right place, but if we're not careful, they can, we can find our focus being removed from Jesus, being removed from that all-important work of spreading the good news, and we find ourselves kind of drifting off somewhere. It might be Bible study for the sake of Bible study, for the sake of just gaining more knowledge, instead of for the point of being more thrilled with Jesus and passing on the good news. It might be focusing too much on a particular aspect of the Bible, like the end times, so that we get distracted from what the end times are really all about, which is Jesus and the good news. Some Christians can get so obsessed with something in the Bible that, it, that they become distracted from staying focused on what is really important. It might be politics. Christians should be involved in politics. We should be political. We should be trying to bring the, the, the salt and light of the good news and make a difference in our world. But politics are not the ultimate answer to this world's problems. Jesus and the gospel are the ultimate answer to this world's problems. It might be environmental causes or social justice. These are really important and followers of Jesus should care for the environment. We should be passionate about social justice and we should do what we can to to work in these areas. In fact, some of the greatest advances in social justice have been brought about by Christians putting their faith into practice. But we need to be careful that we don't get sidetracked and think that the world's greatest need is environmental change or social justice. They're important, but that is not the world's greatest need. The world's greatest need is Jesus and the gospel. And they're just a few examples of ways in which today we, in our culture, might find ourselves getting sidetracked into things that just sort of subtly take us away from staying focused on what is really important, which is Jesus and the gospel. I guess the challenge for us today is, is to think what that looks like for you. In what ways do you think that you might find yourselves getting sidetracked? No one else can really answer that. That's something that we have to think about ourselves. And, and in what ways might us as, a, the, the, us as a church collectively find ourselves focusing on something or, or doing something that maybe just isn't quite what we should be doing? So what does Paul say is the goal of this command? To, to stop teaching wrong things and stop promoting themselves uh, or, or to stop div- 
devoting themselves to things that are uh, going to sidetrack them from God's work. What, what's the goal of this command? Well, look at verse 5. Paul says, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The, Paul's, the point of Paul's teaching and his command was that instead of listening to wrong teaching and focusing on the wrong things or unhelpful things, they would be taught the right things and they'd focus on the right things. If they focused on the gospel, the good news that by putting sincere faith in Jesus and what he'd done by dying on the cross and, and in rising from the dead, they could have their sinful hearts made pure. They could have, instead of having a guilty conscience, they could have a pure conscience, a clear conscience. And all of this had come from God's love for them, demonstrated to them in and through the person and the work of Jesus. And because they'd received God's love for them, they could then be filled with God's love. Filled with love for God and a love for others. And of course, the chief way that we can express our love for others is to tell them about Jesus, isn't it? To tell people about Jesus so that they too can find that great forgiveness, that great relationship with God, because that's every person's greatest need. The Apostle John wrote these words, We love because he first loved us. So focusing on God's love to us expressed in and through Jesus, that helps us love God more. And it helps us love others more. We love because he first loved us. When we have that and when we remind ourselves of that knowledge of our own forgiveness and that liberation from that guilty conscience that we would otherwise have had and from that sense of condemnation from our sin, it produces God's love in our hearts. It should excite us. It should make us passionate about God. Because it's all about Jesus. It's all about the gospel. And when we stay focused on the true gospel message, it should and it will create within us this deep, passionate love for God and a deep, passionate love for other people. And if we love God, then we want to spread that good news about Jesus. Because that brings glory to God. And if we love others, then we want to share the good news with them, the gospel message, because that is everybody's greatest need. But, says Paul, some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. So these teachers at Ephesus were saying that if you wanted to get right with God, then you had to obey the Old Testament law. This is one of the things that they were saying. You had to obey the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments, and the other associated commands that we find in the Old Testament. But Paul says, no, that's wrong. Obeying the law, the Ten Commandments, and so on, that would, in, that would never enable a person to get right with God because nobody is able to perfectly keep all of God's commandments. The only person who ever did that was Jesus. Paul says in verse 8, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. So there's nothing wrong with God's law, the, the Ten Commandments and so on. Actually, it's good. It comes from God after all. So of course the law is good, but the law is only good if one uses it properly, says Paul. So how should we use the law, the Ten Commandments and so on? How should we use those commandments properly? What does he mean by that? Well, look at what Paul says in Romans 3.20. Paul says this, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law or by, by doing the things in the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of our sin. Through the law we become conscious of our sin. So when we compare our lives to the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments and so on, then actually we can see that we fall way short of it. And we can see, therefore, that we need someone to save us from God's punishment for our shortfallings against those sins. Comparing ourselves, having the law revealed to us, it shows us that we're sinners. And it shows us, therefore, that we need someone to save us from the result of that sin. We need a saviour. We need Jesus. 
And when we put our faith and trust in who Jesus is and what he's done for us by absorbing God's wrath for us there on the cross as he died in our place, when we put our faith in who Jesus is, then we can be made right with God. We can be declared righteous. If we turn away from our sin, if we put our faith in Jesus and ask him to forgive us and make us right with God, he will do just that. And God then gives us the same righteousness, the same perfect standard that Jesus has. And because of that, we can then have a relationship with God. Paul says this in Romans 3.21. This righteousness, this perfect standing before God, is given through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. So it's not through obeying the law, because we're incapable of obeying the law. It's through faith in Jesus. We're considered righteous. We're able to get right with God through faith in Jesus. We will sadly still sin. We will sadly still let God down. But if we put our faith in Jesus... And all that that means, God now considers us to be as righteous, to be as perfect as Jesus. And that's why Paul wanted Timothy to challenge the people at Ephesus who were teaching these wrong things. They were saying, well, one of the things that they were saying was that the way to get right with God was that you had to keep all the law. And Paul says, no, it's not, that's not how we get right with God. It's by putting our faith in Jesus, and once we do that, we get to be righteous So the law isn't for those who've been declared righteous, who've put their faith in Jesus. It's for those who've yet to put their faith and trust in Jesus. It's for those who are still rejecting God and who are therefore unrighteous, who are not right with God, who don't have that perfect standing with God. Which is why Paul says this in verse 9. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious. For those who kill their fathers or mothers for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. Now if you examine these sinful actions that Paul lists here, if you examine them in detail, what you'll discover actually is that all of the Ten Commandments are covered here, or breaking all of the Ten Commandments is covered in this list This isn't an exhaustive list. Paul isn't saying, you know, these are the only sins, which is why he then goes on to say, and whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel. What Paul is doing is just highlighting some particular sins to make his point. But it's an important list all the same, and it's not there by accident. The issue for Paul and Timothy in their day was that people were trying to teach that the way to get right with God, or or one of the things that they were saying was that the way to get right with God was that you had to keep all of these commands. That wrong teaching is probably not an issue in our culture, in our day today. I'm not really aware of particularly many churches in the West that are are teaching that kind of thing. That's probably not an issue for us here. But what is an issue is what people define as sin. That is an issue in our culture today. That is an issue, a kind of real hot potato for us at the moment in our culture. See, what God defines as sin doesn't change because God is unchanging. What God defines as sin doesn't change. And so if we think something's okay when God says that it's not, and we carry on doing it and don't turn away from it, then God won't declare us to be righteous. Repenting of sin, and, and repenting of sin really means this, it means accepting sin for what it is, that, 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 that an action is sinful in God's eyes, and then agreeing that it's wrong, and then turning away from it, That's what repentance means. Repenting of sin is an integral part of the gospel. It's an integral part of the good news. It's an integral part of the Christian message. And if we don't repent, 
then there's no forgiveness. And God won't declare us to be righteous. So it's really important that we understand what is sinful. Because if we don't repent from what is sinful, we can't be declared to be righteous. The law helps define sin for us. And Paul reminds us of a whole list of sins here. And it's interesting that most people today would probably agree that these are all sins, except for two. What Paul calls here sexual immorality and those practicing homosexuality. Now, our culture over the last perhaps 20, 30, 40 years has attempted to redefine what sin is in all sorts of ways, particularly when it comes to sexual morality. And it's really important that we understand that the Bible teaches from from start to finish that all sexual activity outside of the marriage of a biological man to a biological woman, all sexual activity or sexual relationships outside of that marriage relationship are sinful. Any kind of sexual activity outside of the relationship of a biological man and a biological woman are sinful. The Bible teaches that from start to finish, and no amount of cultural change will ever change that. The culture can come and can go, but these things stay the same. So we need to be really clear about this because people's eternal destinies are at stake. People's eternal destinies are at stake. People who, Paul says, are are actively involved in sexual immorality, or those who are practicing homosexuality, not who have homosexual temptations, but those who practice homosexuality, they need to accept that what they're doing, according to the Bible, is sinful. And they need to turn away from it, and they need to ask for forgiveness and put their faith in the fact that Jesus was punished on the cross for those very sins, if they want to get right with God. Just as those who sin in any other way, whether that's lying or gossiping or slandering or stealing or murder, they're all sins, And they all need to be repented of. In other words, the person needs to agree, this is sinful, it is wrong, I need to turn away from it. doesn't mean that they will never struggle with that sin or sometimes fall into it, but there's there's an agreement, this is sinful, it is wrong, I need to turn away from it. I need to have a reorientation in my the way I'm traveling in life. All of these things need to be repented of and turned away from. That repentance is right at the heart of what the gospel is. So it's important that we don't water down what the Bible teaches or change our definition of what is sinful because people's eternal destinies are at stake. This won't make us popular. This won't make us the people that maybe everybody wants to hang out with. Holding fast to what the Bible teaches will make us unpopular. We have to accept this. And it's important that we don't Water down what the Bible teaches or change our definition of what is sinful because people's eternal destinies are at stake. The issue for us when it comes to the Old Testament law is probably not people teaching that we need to obey it in order to get right with God as they were doing in Ephesus. The issue for us today is that we need to stand firm about what the law defines sin as so that people who want to get right with God know what they need to repent of and what they need to turn away from. Now, this isn't hate speech. It's the complete opposite, actually. It is love speech. Now, we don't say this in a hateful way. We love people, and we do this with great grace and with great gentleness. So it isn't hate speech. It's the complete opposite. It's love speech. If we truly love people, then we need to make them aware of their need of a saviour. And one of the ways Paul says in this passage that people become aware of their need of a saviour is by being made aware of the law. 
the Ten Commandments and the other commandments of the Old Testament. People need to know what is sinful in order to know what to repent of, in order that they might have faith in Christ and be made righteous. And this list of sins and any other list of sins doesn't exist to condemn people. It exists to show people what sin actually is. We need to know what sin is so we can repent from it. The law, Paul says, exists to show people what sin is and it exists to help lead them to the need of a saviour. To they come to a place of realising, I need someone to save me from this sin. Now the gospel, this, this package of good news of which repentance is right at the heart of it, the gospel has always been under attack. And there will be always be all different kinds of things which will come in and try and water the gospel down or pull us away from it in different ways. And that's why it's so essential that as individuals, we don't just rely on the church leaders or whatever to know what the Bible teaches or to spot false doctrines, but each one of us take really seriously the need to know what the Bible teaches and to make sure that we stand firm. Now, we can't change the world around us. It's not up to us to moralize. It's up to us to bring people to faith in Jesus. We're not about trying to moralize people around us. We're trying to bring people to their need of Jesus. It's so important that we can identify false and wrong ideas that try to undermine the gospel. Paul says that the gospel, this package of good news that we can be right with God through faith in Jesus, it's glorious, he says. It's all about God's glory. The gospel is one of the ways in which God's glory is revealed to us. And it's amazing and it shows us how wonderful God is. That despite the most horrendous sins we could ever commit, we can be murderers according to Paul in this passage. And yet, as Paul was, he was a murderer. And yet, by repentance, through faith in Jesus, we can be made right with God. Isn't that a wonderful, phenomenal message? Now, we need to guard that message. Guarding it will be difficult, will be challenging, particularly when we're in hostile situations where we might be the only person who believes what the Bible says, and that's going to make us unpopular, and there's great wisdom needed as to how and when we wave our flag and, and tell people who we are and what we are and what we believe. We need great wisdom. We need to be really careful and have great wisdom, but nevertheless, this is the gospel. We need to stand firm because the gospel is the hope of the world. This good news that God has entrusted this gospel to Paul and Timothy, he's also entrusted to you and I. So write that on your outline. The gospel has been entrusted to us and we need to protect it and pass it on to others. We need to make sure that what we're living and what we're teaching and preaching actually is the gospel and not a pale reflection of the gospel or a watered down version of the gospel. Because ultimately... What is at stake is God's glory and people's eternal destiny. It really is that serious. It's God's glory and people's eternal destiny. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news. Thank you that we can be made right with you through Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've taken the punishment for the very worst of sins that we could ever commit. Thank you that Paul could say that he was the chief of sinners. He was a murderer, a blasphemer, and yet he had been made right with you by trusting in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that that's true for us. We too, every one of us here can be made right with you through trusting in Jesus. No matter what, no matter what we do, no matter where we've been, no matter what our lives might look like, that through faith in Jesus, 
and repentance and trusting in Jesus, we can be made right with you. We thank you for that wonderful good news. Help us to live that out. Help us to guard it. Help us to protect this wonderful gospel. Help us to be faithful and true to it as individuals and as a church, we pray. We praise you. We give you thanks. We ask for great wisdom and great grace and uh, leading of your spirit as we try to stand for you in a, in a world that doesn't share our values, doesn't share the gospel. Help us, we pray, to be humble and gracious and gentle and yet firm as we stand for you and as we seek to live for you. Help us ultimately, we pray, to be people and a church that are focused on Jesus and focused on spreading this wonderful good news, this glorious gospel, which is the, the hope of the world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.